Welcome to Politically Pissed, the podcast that wants to remind you if you only have mezcal to drink, you will surely die. Hello, and welcome to Politically Pissed. My name is Saeed Charbini, and I'm here with my co-host, Eris. What's up, y'all? And uh, Katya couldn't be with us. She wasn't feeling too well, but she'll be fine. Um, and then we have a special guest here today, uh, Mr. Mike Wiseman. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Mike Weisman. I'm Colorado State Representative from House District 36 in Arapahoe County. All right, Mike. Uh, thank you for joining us. Please tell us about your district. Like, what are the boundaries? What is the population makeup? Stuff like that. Sure. Um, so it's the easternmost of several Aurora districts, Aurora being uh, the third largest city in the state. We have multiple districts, so a number of us uh, share the representation of the city at the state house. Uh, my district starts on the western boundary at Chambers Road, uh, goes out past the tollway, past Gun Club Road, to the very eastern edge of the city where Aurora borders on Watkins. Uh, in the north, uh, it's Colfax, uh, so I'm Arapahoe County only. The part of the city that is north of Colfax is in Adams County, represented by a different legislator, uh, and then all the way south to Smoky Hill Road. So geographically, it's pretty big. I think mm-hmm. I computed it at 75 or 80 square miles once. Jesus. Uh, it's very diverse in every sense of diverse ethnically. Uh, religiously in terms of income, uh, in terms of uh, type of housing, and so forth. I would say it's probably one of the most diverse districts in the state of Colorado. I would have to agree. I mean, I'll admit, I ran your election. Uh, I know about your district. I used to live in it, too. The northern part tends to be, like, the more dense city area. When you get towards the southern eastern part, it tends to be more rural suburbs and just really rolling hills of houses. It really does spread a wide, diverse range. How do you think that affects the way that you decide to make legislation or how you approach, like, meeting people and stuff like that? I think it just means that I have to um, work hard to stay in touch with and and try to encompass a pretty big mix of issues. I mean, as you said, um, I would call it a pretty much an urban district at its northwestern part. I mean, the Colfax corridor uh, has issues, poverty sometimes. I mean, I have Section 8 housing. I have uh, mobile areas near where I live in the northern part of the district. Uh, You may have been following the issue with Denver Meadows, which is further west uh, northwest. Is that the one Aurora. that had the gas leak issues and stuff? Or uh, no, no. So Denver Meadows is a mobile park uh, okay. that is around oh, about that, 20th yeah. and Potomac. Mm-hmm. And basically it's it's getting gentrified. What's happening is as the R-line goes through, as the hospital develops, there's a community there of several hundred people, or used to be several hundred people, uh, and they have been trying to hold on to their homes, uh, most or all of their equity in, in many cases. And uh, the individual who owns the land has been trying for a year to sell and and there's kind of been some attrition of the community. Well, I was say there's a distinction there because the people only own the trailer on top, not the land underneath. Key, right? key point. Yeah, you know, when it comes to um, protections that you have as an owner or a renter, neither of those sets of laws and protections really fully apply to you when you are uh, in a mobile area. You might own your unit, but you only own the unit. To your point, you don't own the land under you. Somebody else does. So you don't have total security. And that's what's happening. We have folks in Denver Meadows who have owned you know, their units in many cases for years, but despite being called mobile homes, they're not actually easy to move if you can move them at all. So anyway, what's been going on there, I fear, may may start to recur in other mobile areas as the housing market continues to get expensive around here, so I keep that in mind. But in in Aurora, there's about 11 uh, mobile areas at least. A lot of them are, are in my district, so that's, you know, to your question about 
bearing in mind the diversity. That's something I keep in mind. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you go to the new parts of the district, and, and they're building new homes. Uh, Out near very, Southlands and all that. Exactly. Yeah. Very upper-income homes, and then folks have different challenges there just in terms of affording such a place or um, HOA issues, uh, issues with a Title 32 district. I was canvassing last summer. I met New Home where four professionals, all ballpark 30 years old, all having a bachelor's or a master's degree, were sharing a place just to make rent. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a different kind of challenge in, in the district. Well, I know exactly how that feels. When you are speaking about the diversity of the community in Aurora, it also reminds me that Aurora is a giant city. And of course, I live in Denver where we're the city and county and we don't have the same issues. Can you walk us through some of the issues with not being a city and county and how that affects Aurora? Sure. Um, so uh, the city of Aurora spans three counties. Mostly it's Arapahoe County, uh, a little bit in Adams and a tiny, tiny little bit, maybe one or two precincts in, in Douglas County. But a little bit of the incorporated city of Aurora <laughs> spilled as of some number of years ago into Douglas. If you know the Rocking Horse development, it's mm -hmm. kind of near there, um, well south of my district, so not an area that I'm particularly familiar with. This idea of being a city and county has floated around, I think, for decades. You know, I, I, I don't think it's the foremost issue. Uh, you know, there are some people who are really for it. Honestly, I'm not. I think there would be a lot of issues to work through, not least of which is it would take a vote of all the people statewide to create a new county, kind of like happened with Broomfield years ago. And when an area becomes a county, responsibilities in law go with that create a sheriff, create a sheriff patrol force, uh, you become directly responsible for elections, you have to build and maintain a county jail, and that's tens of millions of dollars. I'm personally not convinced it's the best thing uh, for Aurora to become uh, mm -hmm. a city and county. I mean, um, right now we're able to draw from uh, the resources of you know, principally Arapahoe County, secondarily Adams County, to provide services that people need. And to me, that's what it comes down to, is are people being taken care of, whatever the structure is. We're talking about breaking counties anyway. Let's throw in real quick, we'll talk about, you had a bill you proposed about creating a new judicial district, District 23, mm -hmm. uh, taking Arapahoe County being the only in 18 at that point, and then Albert, Douglas, and Lincoln, Lincoln would be the three that would go into the 23rd. What does that do to help the people in the community, I guess? What does it do as far as, like, because he's talking about city county shrinking it down, shrinking it down. Does it help people at all? Like, what is? I, I think it what does. What is the stats you had to even want to do that? Sure. And 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 just to clarify, there wasn't actually a bill. I never got to the point of okay. introducing a bill that was debated in the usual way. Rather, it was more kind of conceptual. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been having conversations with folks about this issue since last November, mm -hmm. and a week or two ago, I got to the point where I realized this is a big enough question that. Uh, there's not enough time left in our session in 19 to go ahead. Look forward to continuing to have conversations in the back half of 19 after session. Maybe there can even be a bill in 2020. But just to back up, um, when we first became a state in 1876, one of the first things that happened is we created judicial districts with a district court where people could go and civil and criminal issues would be sorted out. And it's been in our Constitution ever since then that from time to time a judicial district can be changed by the legislature when it makes sense to do so. That takes two-thirds vote of both chambers. It's not meant to be easy to do. It's not meant to happen too often. It shouldn't happen too often. And uh, counties have to be maintained whole in a district, which makes sense because we have county court and low-level criminal, low-level civil issues are handled at the county level. It doesn't make sense to split that up. Anyway, uh, the last time that we had a substantial revision to our judicial districts in Colorado was 1970. Now, I don't think any of us was born at that point. No. <laughs> um, and certainly we were a very different state. We were more rural. We were uh, more dependent 
you know, on sort of the military uh, industry and the role that it had in the Cold War at that point. Denver, you know, was uh, relative to the rest of the state populous. We didn't really have a whole suburban, exurban type of development that we have now. At any rate, at that point, Douglas County was population a couple of tens of thousands of people, and Arapahoe was somewhat bigger, and Elbert and Lincoln were tiny. Now, as of 2017 data from our state, uh, the population of the 18th district is over 1 million people. No other no. district is anywhere close. The next biggest is the fourth, which is El Paso and Teller counties. Uh-huh. That's almost 300,000 fewer people. In other words, it's a whole Douglas County less, essentially. <laughs> and another way to look at it, if you compare the population numbers in 1970 to now, the 18th has grown close to 600% mm. population. No other district is close. So what does all of that mean? You know, it, it means that maybe you don't have the concentration of resources that people expect for efficient resolution of uh, civil and criminal matters. Uh, You may also be hearing that independently of this whole thing about a a possible new district, there's a bill in the legislature this year to increase the number of judges in certain districts, and that's because the incidence of demand on Mm -hmm. the system, criminal and civil, isn't keeping up. Uh, a lot of that has to do with criminal filings. We'll come to that later, I, I, I expect. Uh, we can pro- talk about it after you're done with yeah, the yeah, yeah. creation. Probation, for example, is handled at the judicial district level, and there's more people on probation than anywhere else in the system in the state, mm-hmm. more than on parole, more than inside DOC. Well, yeah, I mean, you have private. over a million people. You just have you know, a large amount of crime because there's a large number of people. It makes sense to break it up to make it easier. More yeah. judges and, actually and, you know, a lot, too. Another, another thing is um, getting back to diversity. I mean, the 18th is a very heterogeneous district, and I think that part, not all, but part of a judicial district should be, you know, the way in which people elect their district attorney. And the mm-hmm. district attorney is, is a very fundamental person in the whole criminal justice system. He or she and the office exercise discretion about what to charge. Uh, you know, something goes down, uh, there's always a variety of ways in which that can be charged. Who's going to get a plea offer? What kind of plea offer? Who's going to get a diversion agreement? All these kind of things. Those so, are just choices that people are, are going to make. And I think if you were to look at Arapahoe County, and if, on the other hand, you were to look at the other three counties, in general, in broad terms, the political proclivities of, of those areas, you would find an inclination to make different choices. And, and, you know, others involved in this discussion have acknowledged the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about the 18th Judicial District, uh, Brockler is the DA. He ran for state attorney general. So what are your thoughts on him? Like, well, how do you see his actions and what he does? Uh, you know, I, I don't know uh, DA Brockler too well. Um, I believe that he's term limited. Uh, he is not able to run again for the 18th, so I don't know what, what is next. Do you know how many term limits they get? I think typically it's two. Uh, I've had a couple of conversations with D.A. Brockler. may surprise you to hear there's some things we agree on. Uh, (laughs) He's talked in terms of sunset for new criminal laws. For example, a new statute goes on the books that is an attempt to respond to some new phenomenon, create some new type of crime. Mm -hmm. Maybe we come back and look at it in five years, seven years, see if, in fact, it's contributing to public safety. See if the I, results actually get what you yeah, want. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I like that idea. Absolutely. That's, that's one, one example. I like sunsets on criminal laws. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and, and sunset is a provision that we're very familiar with in Colorado. We've had a sunset <laughs> law for government oversight function since the 1970s. I think we were the first state to do it. Uh, so the idea of periodically looking at whether our criminal laws make sense and are providing the right balance between public safety and punishment and the right for people to have a second chance, yeah. I think that makes sense. Well, talk about second chance. Do you want to talk about criminal justice reform real quick? Oh, I could talk Since about we're that ta- all we're talking, Yeah, we're talking about judicial district. 
So what are some things you might propose as far as like criminal justice reform? Well, um, man, where to start? Um, there's a lot of places to start. There's a lot of places. So, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had the fortune to serve for uh, two years in my first term on the House Judiciary Committee, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm chairing the committee uh, this, t- this term, 1920. I was also on a sentencing reform interim committee in 17, which was a deep dive looking broadly at all of how we do sentencing in Colorado. Uh, mm-hmm. The way an interim committee works briefly is you only have so much ability to go into depth in a regular session. So an interim committee is a deep dive in a specific subject, and that was very informative. You know, interestingly, there is increasing bipartisanship around the question of sentencing reform, and there should be, because if you are progressive, liberal, democratic, however you want to call yourself, you know, I think that you believe in in not being as harsh as it might be possible to be. Mm -hmm. You believe in trying to support people to realize their potential. On the other hand, if you are conservative, I think that you are concerned about the reach of the state into the private domain. And there is no more fundamental reach than taking somebody's liberty and putting them in in jail or or prison. Uh, I Uh, thought that was just because Republicans go to jail, too. Like that. Well, <laughs> I mean, everybody yeah, goes to jail. I mean, I mean um, well, let's, let's not hope everybody. Fingers crossed. Well, <laughs> fair, fair enough. No, no, no. Okay, I'll take that not, not everybody goes to jail, but I, I people of every class. Yeah, your, your, your point being that that anybody is prone to making a mistake, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even a mistake that that is going to have I mean, them intersect with. The I system. guess it's a matter of how does the court view that mistake, depending on your certain demographics. Well, right, and and how the court views it is largely how the legislature says the court should view it. You know, we, we don't have common law crime anymore in Colorado. That, that, statutory, yeah. that, that is criminal, which is in the statute books, yeah. and those reflect uh, legislative judgments going back years or in some cases decades. Uh, and, and I think, you know, so there's, there's increasing bipartisan interest in criminal justice reform, up to and including the Koch brothers, who, who fund uh, various pilot initiatives in different states. And our two uh, candidates for governor who each have issues. <laughs> well, Polis had his issue with... With the trade secrets? Yeah, something? and um, an assault charge. Yeah. Um, and then, of well, course... Which turned out to yeah. be kind of bunk. You know? It was. Yeah. Because but it was, at the same yeah. time, it, it again shows that everybody is subject to these matters. Um, and then That's Stapleton true. had the drunk driving thing. True. So. Sure. So, you know, I, I think in terms of where we are now, we are decades past... The sort of uh, the era of super predators, quote unquote. Remember when that word used to be used? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or the tough on crime era was, when I really know, like how that became a substitute for black people. Look, I mean, I've you know, I've I've read I've read Michelle Alexander. I've read other things on this mm-hmm. subject. If you look at how many people were in the system, be it jail or prison, state or federal, and we know that of all the people, in some way under supervision right now in our country. It's mostly state, which includes counties. Mm-hmm. Not too many people are doing time, federally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go back to the 70s, you know, we fit with a lot of the rest of the comparable world, OECD countries, Europe, and so forth, in terms of the percentage of our people who were doing time and for what and for how long. Mm-hmm. And then you start looking in the 80s, and the curves go up very sharply. And now we're at the point where over 2 million people are inside at any given moment, and that's not counting people who are out on parole, who are out on probation, or, or the sum of all people who have some kind of prior. But I would say the primary contributors to that would be, one, the drug war, and then mass incarceration or private prisons. I believe those two are the fundamental drivers of that uptick. I mean, what do you propose to do to combat both of those things? Oh, I, I thought, like, for me, the primary driver is racism, 
Then, well, those are the <laughs> behind it, but those are the two things that they did yeah, to enforce yeah. a certain. So, type racist of ideology leads to drug wars that target mm-hmm. black people. That then lead. I mean, to, Nixon himself was on uh, recording saying it was yeah. because he wanted to get minorities and hippies in jail. Okay, I just wanted to. Wait. Well, let's just make I mean, sure let, the primary driver we're talking about. <laughs> you're right, you're right. But the, okay, the tools used were those. Yes. Like, what do you propose? Let, to let, let's this? take the drug war first. Um, you know, it is. It was fundamentally a policy judgment. Mm-hmm. made decades ago, again, before any of us was alive, to treat possession of drugs. Now, we're not talking dealing, mm-hmm. but simple possession and use of substances, which, granted, a lot of which you probably put and should, shouldn't put in your body, but to treat that as criminal rather than as a mental health issue or a, a public health issue, perhaps. And a lot of people, I mean, countless millions of people in our country have done some kind of time or had some kind of charge for marijuana or whatever. And, and you know, to your point... We all know about the disparity between five grams of crack cocaine, five hundred grams of powder cocaine in federal law. So one to one hundred rule, things like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's been on the books, you know, for for decades mm-hmm. now, and has put a lot of people away as a matter of, of federal law for long periods of time, you know. And so here we come to sixty four in in twenty twelve, and a decision by the voters of the state to go in a different direction. And, and you know, yeah. um, I'm not a Actually, not a marijuana user, believe it or not. On my grandfather's grave, I've never touched the stuff. But I'll attest I, to that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I supported 64 because it was the right thing to do because we have better things to do with our criminal justice resources than throw people in jail for possession of small quantities of that particular drug. And, you know, honestly, I, I think, again, putting aside the question of distribution and, and engaging in other criminal activity related to perhaps addiction. I think that there's more to do in our state, and I hope federally and other states as well, in terms of decriminalizing simple possession and treating it in other ways. Yeah, we're on the topic of substances and the legality well, of them. Yeah, we can um, go talk about that. I feel like we um, might as well move it. It's not your district, uh-huh. but Denver has decided mm-hmm. to move to decriminalize mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Friday, the Denver Elections Division certified the petition, saying they had about three thousand or thirty-five hundred more signatures than needed. The voters decide in May whether they want to go ahead and pass it in Denver. I mean, we're talking about prohibition in general, so how do you feel about the decriminalization? Sure. It's um, decriminalization, not legalization. Sure, sure, sure. And, and I, think, I think that's a good distinction because we can differentiate it between Amendment 64. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say we're going to change enforcement priorities. It's a different thing to stand up an entire system of, you know, acquiring a, a particular substance. Look, without without knowing more, without having had a, a lot of time to read into the you know the ballot measure that has been put mm-hmm. to the people, again, I, I I don't support a criminal approach to simple possession and use of drugs. You know, if you're not engaging in activity that is otherwise harmful mm-hmm. to people, if you're not engaging in dealing and distribution and and so forth, there are other risks to public safety that we yeah. need to focus on first. So, if this was something that was moving towards your district, is there? Are there measures that you would like to see in place for decriminalizing other substances that are currently illegal and prosecuted? And uh, I'm talking about like cocaine. And no, heroin. more like more stuff along the lines of mushrooms and just maybe less harmful drugs, or maybe but, acid or something. Yeah, yeah um, <laughs> you know, uh, LSD. Let's say the proper word. Well, um, you know, a lot of things out there that one could put into oneself that mm-hmm. you know got to be careful about. I think marijuana is the easy case because yeah. nobody's uh, ever you know, died it, from it's, it. You don't want to use too much of that. Like you don't want to use too much of of anything. But again, we, we're coming increasingly to a point in this country in a variety of states where people have decided the criminal approach to that uh, doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. 
even now within the realm of prosecutorial discretion, getting back to how important that zone of discretion is that police officers have, that sheriffs have, that DAs have. Again, somebody, you know, you, can't, you find them with mushrooms in their pocket, in their car, or whatever. Um, is that the biggest threat to public safety? I think that has to be the question. Is that the biggest threat to public safety versus other things we know are going on out there? I don't think that it is. I think I like your basic approach of let's get to is it important for public safety? I, I think we have to be careful sort of analogizing from marijuana and other drugs because we know everything has different impacts on people. Uh, what you're doing in the four corners of your own house, I think, is you know, assuming you're not harming anybody else, you're not mm-hmm. harming children that you're responsible for. I start off by thinking that's basically one's own business. Mm-hmm. You know, at the point when you are in a public space, you start to have obligations to other human beings that you're sharing the space with and, and to society at large and so forth. But it's my basic framework. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I guess we can switch gears a little bit. We'll talk about some Me Too stuff. The general idea of collective forgiveness and who decides it and stuff like that, I mean, obviously it's the population Mm -hmm. and everything, um, but how do we move forward with, like, people in politics that have done some things like But, I mean, we get to the state legislature where you work, and, I mean, there's been several cases lately and a lot of things coming out. And, I mean, this is a time when women are starting to be believed over the men and finally. previously, yeah, finally, and previously it wasn't that way. What do you see being done? Do you see any changes coming about from all these things? Or I think we're, you know, we're in the middle of those changes now. You know, getting back to the whole prior discussion about criminal justice, th- there are two things we have to struggle with at the same time here. And one is that point of collective forgiveness. People screw up sometimes. And for the most part, I think people deserve a second chance when they have been penitent when they have asked for forgiveness when they have made amends so they earn it yeah right you have to earn it you know because you you have done wrong you have transgressed you have hurt people you have gone against society's norms and expectations but i generally try to choose to believe as a legislator and as a person that you know people can recover from their worst mistakes all of that said when you are in a public capacity elected or appointed you know, that is an individual charged with significant responsibility. Police chief, fire chief, you could imagine comparable positions. I think that there is a higher standard there. So I think two things could potentially be true at the same time. We have to be able to ask ourselves, as a private individual, at what point does that fellow get a second chance with his family, with his community? And at the same time, particularly in this era, is it the right thing to do for a public body to extend an offer of employment in that case so soon after you know the fact i I certainly think it raises questions anyway well i mean let's let's uh take this a little further i mean we're going to talk about the virginia state leadership a little bit talk about how their governor northam you know was found to have a blackface picture in his yearbook next to a kkk member or at least somebody dressed like a KKK member. He at first, at first apologized, then he retracted, saying that you know it wasn't him in there. Then he threatened to moonwalk. Yeah, and his wife stopped him. He's, yeah, not <laughs> about that one. <laughs> I wish he had moonwalked. That would be funny. But then the lieutenant governor has two accusers now for allegations of sexual assault and rape. And then the attorney general, which is the third person mm-hmm. in line, has now come out and said that he has also done blackface before for competitions and stuff like that, or for events or whatever. The thing is. These are the three men in line. If Democrats are requesting that people like this step down, the fourth person in Mm -hmm. line is the Speaker of their House, which is a Republican. Mm -hmm. So essentially this is Democrats calling for the ousting of their own party 
to put in a Republican in charge. Are we so hard set to our beliefs and that these things are so wrong, these people need to go, that we're willing to hand it over to the other party? Are party politics more important? Yeah. You know, um, standard disclaimer, um, I know what I've read. Fair but, enough. Yeah, this is a whole other but, state. But all, but, issue, right, right, but. right. You know, I work 70 to 90 hours a week in session trying to stay on top of my job and my duty to the people of this state. All that said, what I have seen is really a mess and really shameful. Uh, yes. I think that uh, there are significant questions as to whether any of these individuals can lead anymore. Yeah. I mean, to lead means a lot of things, but it means having trust. It means having moral authority. Uh, and I think between, uh, you know, the sex assault allegations and, and the, the instances of, of racism in a part of the country where that history is 400 years old, yeah. very much raise questions about, about you know, both trust and moral authority. Now, I was reading this morning into what the state constitution of Virginia says in terms of succession, and I think there's a little bit of debate in, mm-hmm. in there, as there sometimes is in the law. Uh, I believe that if there were a vacancy in the office of lieutenant governor, it seems that the governor has the ability to make a, a, an appointment, uh, essentially, to fill that vacancy. There is a particular uh, Virginia state senator who seems to be pretty well regarded as a potential Democratic state senator, so, as a potential successor. So let me uh, get this straight real quick, though. So you're saying whichever one of those two doesn't go sure. gets to choose a new lieutenant governor that could succeed them if they decide to go afterwards. On at least one reading of the Virginia Constitution, I think that's right. Now, there's other language in the Constitution mm-hmm. that says where the lieutenant governorship is is uh, vacant, mm-hmm. at least temporarily, then the president pro tem of the state senate fulfills that office. Some people think that that controls over the the governor appointment provision. Mm-hmm. Uh, possibly, you know, they're both true at the same time. In the case of a temporary week, two, maybe a month mm-hmm. gap, then the uh, president pro tem comes in and. I think that individual's Republican. I don't know the makeup of the Virginia State mm-hmm. Senate. But it says in the Constitution the governor can make an appointment. And to me, that makes more sense than, you know, a multi-year sort of vacancy situation where a different individual who with kind of less of a tie to statewide, you know, political office is is stepping in. So, you know, I, I presume that a lot of election lawyers in Virginia are looking pretty hard at that provision because I remember reading in the paper this morning that uh, – at least one legislator is going to introduce an impeachment uh, oh. resolution tomorrow morning. Jesus. Uh, you know, <laughs> okay. The situation is not addressed. I mean, it, it's... I mean, it's just, uh, it sounds like a lot of political gymnastics, but it seems like it's going to start going somewhere. Yeah. Uh, well, it's. I think it's going to be a, an interesting and difficult week uh, yeah. in, in Virginia. Know, but the guy who was either in the Klan robe or wore blackface <laughs> probably shouldn't be appointing anybody to yeah. anything, especially well, if they went to school with him. You know, say, yeah. Maybe we should uh, just start vetting our yearbooks. I know that in my your book if your anybody <laughs> well my mom's the one who pointed it out yes but you know i know in my yearbook if uh anybody from you know that particular group decided to run for public office i'm like yeah so these pictures of them in high school in blackface in the 2000s let's let's go with that and remove them is one of those things well, that well, let's, I mean, points out that Virginia is not the only one with these issues. We're kind of stacking hypos on hypos here, yeah. but let's keep going for a minute. Um, <laughs> I, I think, look, you raise a valid point. Yeah. I mean, the fact that moral authority has been compromised here Extremely. goes to appointment. Yeah. However, I think what Virginia leadership needs at this point is somebody new, somebody different, somebody who can step in and basically heal the wounds that have been created as to... Uh, gender-based harassment as to 
you know, an awful history of, of race and racism, somebody who is maybe not, I don't know, of, of a piece here, somebody different, from, somebody from the outside who, who can come in and start to restore leadership and, and moral authority oh. and, and can very directly address the injuries that have been created here. Virginia, you need a black woman. There you go. No, that's a fair point. So we'll, we'll see. You know, uh, I think it's going to be uh, an interesting week in the news in Virginia. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it, actually. Now that you said that there's somebody actually thinking about bringing that Monday. I'm interested to see what happens with that. Yeah. Let's go ahead and switch a little bit of gears back to local. Andrew Romanoff stated that he was going to run for Senate last week mm-hmm. uh, against Cory Gardner in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, Romanoff's done a lot of work in your county. Mm-hmm. I know you probably have met him several times mm-hmm. and know a bit about him. Let's start off with uh, what has he ran for, sat in before, like stuff like that. Because I, I think he ran for Senate, but I wasn't sure. U.S. Senate. Yeah, I wasn't so, sure. so I believe, and this is uh, you know going back before my time in Colorado politics, but Andrew Romanoff was first elected to the State House mm-hmm. uh, from East Denver in 2000. He served the full eight years allowed under term limits, 2000 to 2008 in the House. He was Speaker in the 5, 6, 7, and 8 terms. Uh, he ran for U.S. Senate in a Democratic primary in 2010 didn't make it. What had happened is Michael Bennett was appointed to fill the term of Ken Salazar, who had been picked for Secretary of the Interior by President Obama early in in, uh, the president's first term. Romanoff then ran against Mike Kaufman for CD6 in 2014, Mm -hmm. raised a lot of money, ran a vigorous campaign. That was a bad year for Democrats. He didn't make it. Uh, Shortly after that, he became president of Mental Health Colorado, and I believe just effective, you know, the 31st of January or so, or February 1, uh, has stepped down out of that capacity to focus full-time on, on running. So some of his things that he said he wants to stand for is like Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, eliminating carbon emissions. Oh, so the things that every Democrat says that they Pretty stand much, for yeah. that's running for any higher office? Well, cool. this goes to my question then is, does he have the ability and the backing to actually win the position to do any of these things? And Sure. Um, you know, good question. I think it depends on the makeup of, of the whole U.S. Senate and the yeah. whole Congress going into 2021. But, uh, you know, I, I so at, at the Arapahoe County Reorg, uh, this is the first time I heard Andrew speak in a, shall we say, a senatorial candidate capacity or a pre-senatorial candidate quick, yeah. capacity. Uh, look, he's he's a good public speaker. He always has been. He He speaks powerfully to, I think, his most recent work with Mental Health Colorado and getting back to mm-hmm. things that impact people regardless of your station in life, regardless of your political affiliation, uh, Democratic, Republican, unaffiliated, conservative, whatever, you know people who are struggling with mental illness. You mm-hmm. know people who uh, maybe are struggling with a drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know people who, who have taken their own life uh, or who have attempted to. Those things span everybody. Mm-hmm. That kind of pain spans everybody. Uh, and I think that Andrew has seen that in the course of running a mental health organization. I think that will be an interesting platform from which he can uh, speak statewide, uh, and, and, you know, in addition to all the other things that, that you just mentioned. Uh, you know, we are, as I understand it, the number one pickup opportunity uh, Senate seat in the entire country going into 2020. Yeah. Cory Gardner is going to be a very difficult opponent to beat. And whether it's Andrew or anybody else who steps forward as a Democratic candidate, they need to bring their best game because we will have quite a contest on our hands in, in uh, summer and fall of 2020. Yeah, It would be really interesting to see if the party continues to support losers. We have losers running for president, and now we might have to, a loser running you, for 
another elected to office. To be fair, in he, our he own did state. lose twice running for federal elections: the primary and then the CD six. I think that the primary is a, a different thing, and 2014 was a bad uh, year for yeah. Democrats. You know, he was not the only good candidate to lose that year. I, I'm hoping that 2020 will be more like 2018. And at any rate, I mean, there will be other folks getting in. I don't think any candidate gets a clear path to that nomination to go against Cory Gardner. Uh, I think that we're going to have a vigorous Democratic primary on our side. I think it's already forming up clearly. Well, and let's go ahead and talk about that primary a little bit. I know Mike Johnston has mm-hmm. said he's going to run. Mm-hmm. Mike runs for everything. He does run for everything. <laughs> whatever, whatever is available. But, uh, and then I heard Chrysanza Duran is a name that might be thrown in. Do you know anybody else? Are there any other names you know of? Uh, there is a, a, a woman, a scientist named Trish Zornio, uh, who is looking at it. I believe that she is in, in an exploratory phase. Okay. Uh, as far as I know, she would be a first-time uh, candidate for elected office. There is a woman named uh, Lorena Garcia who has been going to some of the reorgs. I missed her at Arapahoe if, if she was there, but I've heard that she was present at, at other reorgs. I think that she is also a first-time candidate, at least for, for federal office. Those are the ones that I know about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, again, Do any uh, of them pique your interest mm-hmm. at all? You know, I think I think several of those folks, you know, could be very credible. The black man for Colorado. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he said a black man's name, but yeah. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. I should run as that. Oh, you yeah. want to? He no. wants to run. You want to support him? Uh, I don't <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm neutral. In this I want to run away, so, so you're so fine. Um, <laughs> look, I, I mean, just kidding. You know, if, if we go back to the last Senate race, uh, yeah. well. I mean, I, I don't remember that you know, that Michael Bennett had too hard of a, a time in, in 2016, and, and at any rate, we were all focused on the presidential that year, and yeah. rightly so. But you go back to 2014, you go back to when Cory Gardner was first elected. In Mark Udall, you had, I think, a, a solid candidate with a long history of public service in the family, uh, a very vigorous campaign, a lot of offices open around the state, all of that. And, you know, it was close and, you know, it didn't, didn't quite get there going against a, a tough opponent. And again, that's, I'm thinking forward to November. I think a lot of the folks who are mm-hmm. officially in or looking at getting in mm-hmm. uh, could potentially be strong statewide candidates, but they need to know they're going to need to raise a great deal of money, build a statewide organization, mm-hmm. hold themselves out, and, and earn the trust of, of voters. Yeah, well, It's not easy to do. As we no. talk about the trust of voters, what would it take for some of these candidates to get your endorsement and your support? What earns your trust, Mike? I uh, I want to know. I want to really have a deep understanding of, of where somebody is in terms of their views on policy. I mean, to me, that's what elected office is about. It is a policy-making position. You are one of a privileged few, 100 in the case of the U.S. Senate, 65 in the case of the State House, whatever, to change the laws under which we all live, and that is a very solemn thing. So I want to know what your what direction you want to go in and how you're going to go about it. How do you think about balancing all the different uh, factors and, and so forth? And then, you know, secondarily, are you committed to doing the work and making the sacrifices that it will take to win? Because to, to be Ford as a party's general election candidate, now whatever the differences were, you know, you are the... the the vehicle for the furtherance of the party's values. And look, in the Democratic Party, we're, we don't have one set of values. We have many sets. That's, that's who we are, and so that's, big that's umbrella, fine. Right? But yeah. Big and probably getting bigger with every passing year. <laughs> you know, again, I'm, I'm neutral in this primary now. I've known of the folks that we just mentioned. Um, I've known all of them for at least years, in some cases mm-hmm. pushing 15 years. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think well of them. Um, I'm going to wait and see how this, this shakes out. Okay. Cool. 
I'm asking for your books first, and then I will move forward from there. What? Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, Thinking about who's going to step up and run. I mean, much like the presidency, it seems like there's going to be a list. I think there's a there's a big list. Look, we are in the era in in politics, both parties, and I think mm-hmm. particularly Democratic politics, where kind of the the old ways of of things breaking up the ranks of a party, yeah, are 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 falling away. Um, and you know, maybe that's a good thing. Uh, I, I don't think that there's a clear favorite uh, for president on our side. I don't think that there's a clear favorite for. U.S. Senate, it's going to be up to the candidates to establish themselves uh, as the clear favorite. I'm not somebody who thinks a primary is a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, iron sharpens iron, they say sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think that we have a, a prospect here, a possibility that our ultimate candidate, any of the three, four, five, however many, mm-hmm. could be a better candidate for it. On the other hand, I do think that a primary isn't always bad, but it can be bad if it gets ad hominem or ad feminem, you know. A primary is an occasion to set forth your vision mm-hmm. for policy, for leadership, for moral authority, to point out the flaws in the status quo, which, let's be honest, isn't too hard to do right now, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and and to present yourself as an alternative. Mm-hmm. And I encourage all the candidates to do that and to to not focus their criticisms on each other. Isn't the previous thinking of a primary, though, is that everybody's going to dredge up all the mud on each other that they can and ends up ruining them for the general? But we're, well, look, I, I'm opposed. To, I, I'm more with you. But. We've seen primaries like that, and that's a choice that any candidate is going to make. And I hope that candidate that our candidates on the Democratic Party make the choice to not do that with each other. I mean, look, you know, I think that there's a lot to point out uh, and to question and to criticize and critique <laughs> in the kind of U.S. senator that Cory Gardner has been for six years. Mm-hmm. We need a new direction in, in this country versus where uh, Trump has been taking us. Uh, I'm so very glad that we at least now have a majority in the U.S. House to, to stop some of what the president would otherwise do. Uh, but to, to really, you know, get back to that list, to really move in terms of energy transition for our economy, to deal with the health care problems that we have in this country, the problems of student debt, the problems of the cost of housing, to restore, talk about moral authority, to restore our moral authority as a country mm-hmm. in this world after the damage that, that Trump is doing to it, um, we, we, we do need to have a Democratic majority in the U.S. Senate uh, to do that. And this is the, the highest deliberative body, legislative deliberative body in the entire world. And I mean, it needs to start acting like it. I'm going to go against you a little bit here, All right. just uh, with the party thing. I mean, is more Democrats necessarily what's needed, or is more civility in general? Okay, you know, fair. Um, look, I don't... I don't think things used to be like they are now. They didn't. I mean, <laughs> it, you, you know, so Massachusetts, where I lived a very long time ago in life, you know, you had Bill Weld, who was a moderate Republican governor. You had Teddy Kennedy. We all know Teddy Kennedy, mm-hmm. you know. They would clash. And then, you know, rumor has it they'd go out and get a Guinness together See? at some <laughs> Irish pub. That's the thing um, you can do when you have your school friends that you're talking to <laughs> um, and you're mad at. You can't really do that now when everybody didn't grow up in the same circumstances, didn't have the same call to public service, and doesn't reflect you. Like that. I'm just going to say, I don't think that yeah. – you're not going to tell me that Mitch McConnell and Ocasio-Cortez are going to grab a beer one day. I'm just not seeing you know, that. Mitch can grab a beer with Barack. Like, <laughs> I don't think <laughs> that. Anyway, that, that, that seems like a, an, an unlikely uh, pairing. But look, I mean, let me just go from a personal example. So uh, in the Colorado House, you know, traditionally speaking, 
Democrats sit on one side, Republicans sit on another side. Mm -hmm. uh, last session, the 71st General Assembly, uh, we had a majority that was just big enough that a couple of us spilled over onto the quote-unquote Republican side. I happened to be one of those. Mm -hmm. So I had Justin Everett, I had Eulen Willett, I had Hugh McKean, I had Polly Lawrence sitting near me in different directions, and I talked to him because why am I going to not talk to them? They're, They're right there. They're <laughs> my colleagues. They're mm -hmm. people. Uh, and in, in, in small ways, I would, I would get to know them and, and try to build a little bit of rapport. And, you know, we would vote together once in a while, and we'd probably not vote together uh, a lot of the time. It probably doesn't surprise you. But the point is, for my part anyway, I was trying to just make a human connection. And I think that when you are one of a very small number of people, again, in empowered with potentially the ability to change the laws under which six million people in Colorado live, mm -hmm. you have to you have to be able to relate on a human level. You have to have functional relationships with your colleagues regardless of party. And that takes effort on both sides. And now, you know, we have a lot of new members in the General Assembly. A lot of those folks I just mentioned have for one reason or another not come back to the General Assembly. We have new members in the other party and notwithstanding we have a historically big majority in our mm -hmm. party. Uh, in the House, I still feel it is worthwhile and, and um, a responsibility to get to know my colleagues on the other side. Agree where we can, disagree where we have to. I guess let's go to that majority you talked about, too. You want to work with them and you want to agree when you can and all that. But at this point with the majority, do you feel that you have to do that anymore? Like, I, mean, I know you should because it's, it's respect and stuff like that. But, I mean, you guys can do whatever you want now, pretty much. Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, you know, 41 out of, out of 65 is a big majority for either party uh, mm -hmm. to have, but I think one way that any party loses a majority is by taking it for granted, by being abusive with that power, and we've seen that happen. Um, you know, with the recalls, I think, in 2019. Well, no, I'm, I'm going back way, way earlier <laughs> than that. Um, you know, we were an interesting state decades ago. I mean, the Republican Party had pretty much perennial majorities in the legislature for decades, even as the governor was Democratic. Um, you know, I think that there started to be a, a more stridently conservative uh, form of a Republican majority uh, in, in the legislature here in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Um, and I think that is what started to shift Colorado to a current purple politics. And, you know, going back 15 years ago now in, in, in the early aughts, um, just because you can doesn't mean that you should. I mean, there will be some uh, big debates that we'll have, and those votes may go down party line. They may. Mm -hmm. And where an important policy is on the line for the people of our state, okay. Uh, that is why parties contest elections. You, you win a majority so that uh, you can use it to advance policy mm -hmm. when you need to, uh, when can it's the right I, thing to do. Can I point out when we need to? Tabor. Sure. <laughs> but what are you guys doing sure. on Tabor? So just, just to finish that thought for a <laughs> oh, second. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but I think that that ought to be the exception uh, mm -hmm. and not the rule. I mean, I talk to members of the other party, you know, on, on Judiciary Committee, for example, try to find areas where we can agree. If we want to make change in criminal justice, in fiscal policy, like you're saying about Tabor, mm -hmm. change is going to be more durable and less prone to swinging back the other way mm -hmm. uh, in two or four years, depending on the outcome of the next election, if it's done now in a bipartisan way, if it's not maximally acrimonious. Now, getting back to Tabor, um, <laughs> look, personally, here's where, where I am about it. Um, 
you know, this policy went on the books 26 and change years ago. We're a different state now. I mean, um, Very different. A, a lot of people who live in Colorado now weren't even here to vote on Tabor. And you, you weren't old enough yet, were you, Eric? No, I was not. I was here. He's here, but he He had no say. <laughs> so, look, I, I mean, I guess uh, in two words, here's what I would say we need to do about Tabor. Statewide, deep roots. Mm-hmm. Those are the two words. Uh, and deep roots means uh, essentially that a question is put to the voters, and if the voters approve this jurisdiction, in this case the state, simply retains the revenue that comes in and invests it in things that people want. We're not talking about raising taxes. We're not talking about issuing long-term debt. We're not talking about the other things that require going to the ballot. But it would give Tabor. you the opportunity to raise taxes without going to the voter center, right? No, no, no. no, no you're not talking about no, that, that, that That's okay. the key point. So uh, there's lots of different parts of Tabor. Hmm. Part of it is you can't – so, for example, we got a 4.63% income tax rate in Colorado. If we want to increase that to 5%, 6%, whatever, the legislature emphatically cannot do that. It takes going to a vote of the people. Mm-hmm. Statewide debris is different than increasing a tax rate. Mm-hmm. Part of Tabor is this concept of a, a revenue cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you do a calculation. You look at last year's revenue. You apply inflation. You apply a population increase. And you're allowed to keep that much, and you've got to refund the rest. Uh, right now, according to our latest estimates, we're looking at a Tabor refund of almost $400 million. <laughs> However, we know that we are underinvested in public education, mm-hmm. in higher education, in healthcare, in transportation, and so on. Uh, so it's a little bit of an anomalous situation. You look at the ballot measures last year, we had funding for education failed. Mm-hmm. We had funding for transportation failed. Mm-hmm. You can construe that a lot of ways. I think one way it's fair to construe it is the voters saying, look, we care about these things, obviously, but do it with existing revenue. I mean, so just, then, can, uh, so, so the, the case to make to the voters about a statewide deep Bruce is okay. Let us, elected representatives, respond to those challenges by investing existing revenue. The economy's remarkably good in Colorado right now, better than most states. Mm-hmm. That's why the surplus, but we do not have the ability to make those investments in transportation in K-12, for example, without uh, the approval of the voters in this this deep Bruce. And again, that's not raising taxes. So is it the process then, or is it um, just a failure of understanding, like, because you said it's based on, like, population growth, inflation, and stuff like that. Is it a failure at determining what those actually are, or is it just you can't go that high? Or? No, I, I would I would go all the way back to Tabor itself. I mean, so the measure of inflation used mm-hmm. uh, for Tabor purposes is CPI, Consumer Price Index. Okay. But that's a broad measure of the economy, and that doesn't measure what the state government does. The state government invests in transportation infrastructure. And if you look at the prices of building roads, they're going up a lot higher than overall inflation. Uh, the state government invests in health care for its people. That is also subject to a lot sharper inflation. Frankly, people who really look hard at this, and that does include Republicans, like Dan Thurlow, he's talking about Republicans. I was sitting here. He was directly in front of me. <laughs> Moderate, principled Republican who broke with his party on a lot of big things. And he understood the problems in Tabor and Gallagher and how in particular it hurts rural Colorado. So he had some ideas about this. The the combination of, of consumer price index and, and population frankly, was set up to fail from 1992 on. It has systematically actually reduced the scope of public investment in Colorado relative to the growth of our economy. Uh, for example, you, you, um, you look at the growth in personal income. That's a measure of economic uh, output that's a lot more realistic. Uh, if if uh, the Tabor um, cap basically had been pegged to the growth in personal income starting in 1992, 
instead of a broader measure of inflation like we've been talking about, we'd be in a lot different place right now, 26 mm-hmm. plus years later. I'm going to pivot because we're talking about defunding of important institutions like, like schools. Yeah, like yeah. schools. You want to go to the strike then? Um, yeah. So, of course, DPS teachers are planning to go on strike as we're recording this podcast will be on Monday. Um, and we will know kind of the results of that after it's already (laughs) posted but we've seen a bunch of teacher strikes across the country this year largely focused on the bigger school districts Mm -hmm. and now it's come to colorado with dps which is a big school district in our state state. Um, yeah and one of our most prominent school districts in the state so when you see these instances of underfunding in public education and the backlash that is starting to cause one, do you worry about this being something that takes place in your district? And two, what is a reasonable thing to expect, considering our our resource restraints in the state? Okay, I'll take the I guess the first question first. Do you know do do I fear or expect this coming to uh, Aurora potentially? Yeah, I mean, so Denver is where it is now. APS, I understand, will be renegotiating its contract with its teachers in about a year, and I do think, and I you know I know people who teach in APS. And I think that a lot of those folks are looking to see what happens in Denver, mm-hmm. looking at the position that the teachers union takes, looking at the position that the district takes, uh, and looking at how the public reacts to this, you know, and trying to figure out how that's going to roll down to APS or whatever other district. I'm just really glad that Polis took the position he did. I think that was Stay the right, that it. was the right yeah. position to take, uh, especially for a governor who's who's new in his administration. Mm-hmm. So look, I was reading into this this morning. Yeah. Like uh, well. well uh, my whole thing with Paul is taking that position is he's also a person who is invested in charter schools. So I am a little bit concerned when the highest elected official in our state says that he's not going to take a position when you know that his investment is in charter schools. It's it's a worrisome thing. thing? If you are talking about teachers unions and the different public school system, yes, it is a bad thing as far as setting. But he's not putting his thumb on the scale in one way or the other then. Not putting, not saying nothing also says something. Okay. That's um, fair. You know, it's, I will put this in the same context as I would put a lot of things. Um, not saying anything about slavery means that you support slavery, right? Not saying anything about protecting women is not protecting women. Not saying anything in these instances. Being silent, yeah. And having an investment in a different area says something about what you believe and what your policies are and what your principles so what are. what is it saying then? And for me, for, it, <laughs> for me, it says, this is a mess. DPS should fix it. I'm not going to comment because I also don't necessarily think that DPS schools are as important as they are, right? And that mm-hmm. public, public education, mm-hmm. it Sense to me that public education is not a priority and it's not important. Gotcha. Especially so in the school district. Seeing him taken to the sidelines says that he doesn't care. Yeah. He's not, no, he's not I, valuing you know, it. That's, that's not how I've construed it. I mean, I think that I, kind of the, 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 the near-term question here was, was, was you know, the State Department going to come in and, and extend the, the time clock for the strike? And I, I think the right answer there is no, and that's where we landed. So, you know, we'll see tomorrow. I think what's okay. happening now is there's a difference of a few million dollars in the negotiating position between the union and and the district. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I hope the district does the right thing. We, 
we have been a bottom 10 state in K-12 funding, and there's a lot of reasons for that, not least Tabor, Tabor. for as long as I can remember. We are 50th out of 50 dead last in teacher compensation in Colorado compared to all the other states when you control for the level of education that the profession requires. And, you know, every teacher has a bachelor's degree. A lot have a master's degree. Some have a Ph.D. And this was one thing, you know, 10 years ago when Denver was reasonably affordable. I think I was reading, I mean, median rent, you know, is $1,700, $1,800 in yep. Denver anymore. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, te- teachers work second jobs, maybe third jobs, uh, just to, to hold down the bills. I mean, that's not a sustainable situation for public education. The students are the ones that suffer the most with that because then the teachers can't focus as much in the classroom. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, to teach is a... At the least, it's a profession. I think for folks who go into it, it is actually a calling. And these are folks who spend eight hours, in some cases more, with our rising generation. They deserve to be compensated accordingly. They deserve to be able to pay their own bills without having to go out and and work another 40 hours a week on top of the 70 or 80 they're already working. It made me think of, uh, I remember before, and it's not education or anything, but McDonald's had put out something about workers in their place and – it said in there like you had your wages from McDonald's and then they made a spot for a second job. Like they just expected everybody that worked there to have to have a second job. And it's kind of what the school system's getting to now. It's like they're just expecting all the teachers just to have second jobs and be like, deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the, the median salary, um, uh, you know, for DPS is somewhere in the lower 50s yeah. Yeah. Uh, at this point. And, and, you know, you, you subtract rent being what it is and cost of health care, mm-hmm. which is increasingly ridiculous yeah, for people. At that point, you're like 75% of their check. Yeah, oh. there's, there's, there's not a lot left. And the median's not included. I mean, you also have the teachers on the lower end of the spectrum who are new, who have less access to financing for housing, less access to having a dual income. Mm-hmm. And, and, that and, becomes and we're not even talking about uh, para-professional positions, which mm-hmm. are... Uh, even less compensated and, mm-hmm. and, and have an even harder time getting by. So, you know, I, I think I think we better be watching the papers tomorrow morning, and I'm hoping that the <laughs> district does the right thing for, for its teachers. I got my Google alert set. <laughs> well, it's not even just doing the right things for the teachers. It's doing the right things for the students because strikes hurt students. Um, it also hurts the least advantaged students, the, right. ones, yeah. the ones who depend on going to school for food, the ones who right. depend That's on having that right stability. There, yeah. And again, those who who may not, you know, who don't necessarily have, uh, you know, the most stable household where they can kind of hang there. Um, I I have seen, and you know, this is at least a small good thing. You know, schools will be open at least for for food. I mean, I don't know the statistic in Denver, but uh, district wide across APS, seventy one percent of the district is free and reduced lunch. (laughs) There's individual schools that are ninety percent free and reduced lunch. Um, so I think that yeah. we, we don't we don't often think of schools uh, that way or public education that way, but it has that critical function. It's gotten to that point, uh, yeah. You know, I know that the Denver libraries are going to have uh, some some resources, I think, including food for kids who may need it. You know, all the the public uh, rec centers I think are are going to be prepared. I hope they. Mm-hmm. I hope it doesn't come to that. But well, I mean, speaking of all this, I mean, we're talking about needing to staff the schools with teachers and stuff like that for the students for the, during the strike. Suzanne Cordova, the new superintendent had put out last time there was a government shutdown that they were to take anybody and like hurry through the credentials and everything so they could be substitutes they might do it again i mean how do you feel about her reaction to some of this and stuff like that that you've seen in the news it, it looks like from what i've read the district has come a little way toward 
you know, the requests of, of the teachers, which mm-hmm. is just, and it, it, it's not just the amount of salary, although that's clearly part of it. I think what a lot of the teachers are looking for is a little bit more predictability. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the pro-comp system that drives compensation, and I think that is geared to performance metrics in a way that just kind of bakes in instability of compensation in the system. And now this is where we start to have a nexus to state policymaking. Obviously, um, you know, education is heavily local in in Colorado, Mm -hmm. but over the years, we keep baking more uh, high-stakes testing, in particular, you know, kind of proprietary uh, instruments into how we fund education. And if you look at an economically struggling area, so here's a a statistic for you. A couple years ago, I spent a day visiting a couple of different schools in APS. I went to the old Mrachek, the one that they demoed now a few years oh, ago because yep. it was so run down, in the AM, and then I went over to East Middle School in the PM. teacher at East Middle School shared with me that at least in, in her class, if not the whole school, half of kids are coming from a home where they don't have both uh, natural parents. One-third of kids are coming from a situation where they don't have either. Extended family, aunt, uncle, grandmother, who knows. Can kids coming from that kind of background succeed and, and, you know, maybe even go to Harvard, Yale, whatever? Of course they can. But it's a bit of a challenging position to start from. And when you look at a district like APS or DPS that maybe has additional needs in terms of poverty to overcome, in terms of English language acquisition, it is really unfair to penalize the teachers who are trying their best to teach kids from that situation. What we need is more support, not not less, not threatening to take away support, not threatening to take away wages. Well, and historically, when we do have teachers who are put in that position, they are the teachers who have the least amount of experience. Or you'll have one teacher who is has to serve as the mentor for every new teacher in a situation that is going to be difficult to walk into, especially considering that most of our teachers don't always have the backgrounds of the people that they are going into the schools with. On any level, economically, racially, sometimes gender becomes an issue as well, especially since we have more female teachers than we have male teachers. So it, it does put them in a, dis- a disadvantage and it does put them in a really awkward position. I would be curious to see how it also looks in the rest of the state as far as how we are tying the performance of teachers to the performance of their students in these areas and what areas we can actually work on to make it less burdensome on all parties involved. Well, so let's go to to kind of quantity and then distribution. So going all the way back to the last recession, you know, uh, budget year 9, 10, 11 thereabouts, we have this thing called the negative factor uh, in, in state funding, sometimes also called the budget stabilization factor. And we have been managing to buy it down a little bit, meaning fill in the hole. The last couple of years, it is still uh, open to the tune of several hundred million dollars, which means if you draw a line from where we would have been had the last recession not happened and the cuts uh, started getting made, you compare that line to where we are now, That you know, almost 10 years out from the last crash, you know, there's that gap of something around five, six hundred million dollars that that is the cumulative underfunding of public education because of the recession and and to some extent as we come into the Tabor refund posture. So what can we do? We can continue to prioritize public education funding. We can continue to be supremely skeptical skeptical of any new proposals for tax breaks. Sure, we all want to incentivize things. Democrats want to incentivize things too, like renewable energy. But 
when we're passing a tax break, we're fundamentally taking money from priorities like K-12, is how I look at it. Now, are there some that are broad-based enough and are careful enough in their distribution that they're worth looking at, like low-income child care tax breaks? Okay, maybe. But we see all kind of things every year that are essentially just special interest carve-outs in the tax How many code. tax breaks do those developers get? Yeah, <laughs> your hesitation. I would at all. be I would be hard pressed uh, hard pressed to count. There has been attention to this in the last couple of years. There's something you can get called a tax expenditure report. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the legislature has charged the office of the state auditor to compile these things. Uh, I think if you were to look up all of the different, I mean, look, to some extent, everybody gets a tax break, mortgage interest deduction. You can write off certain health care costs, but. Even if you define it uh, more narrowly than that, which is what I think we're, we're speaking about here, right. we're looking at at least hundreds of millions of dollars that are, are not coming into the state for priorities like teacher pay, K-12, higher ed, health care, transportation, uh, because sometime years or decades ago, a hole got punched in, in the tax code, and, and we're still living with some of that. You and I here, we, we go to work, we, we earn our paycheck, we pay our bills, we don't get special tax breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we all need to be very skeptical about that. We talked briefly the lack of funding for higher education, um, which, of course, then leads to institutions of higher education going and recruiting students from outside, which further puts Colorado at a disadvantage when it comes to education of its population. What thinking do you have around that? Is there anything that you've seen come up that would be beneficial to higher education? You know, this is a tough one. Um, you're exactly right. I mean, higher ed is, is sort of the last one uh, standing. We have the constitutional protection for K-12 under Amendment 23. When the recession happened last time, I mean, billions of dollars were cut out of the budget over several years. There used to be a tuition cap by which our public colleges and universities couldn't raise the rate of tuition more than, I think it was 6%. That was lifted, and there were a couple of years, you know, 9, 10, 11, where our public colleges were raising tuition 20-25% a year, or they were going to close the doors, basically, because state funding was was cliffing off. You know, I think of, of higher public education as fundamentally affordable. Uh, that That's the concept. If somebody's lucky enough to go to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, more power to you. But the, the point of CU, the point of CSU and things like it in, in any other state is to be an affordable pathway for people who are you know, residents of that state. And we've fallen very far from that place. How to uh, restore adequate funding? I wish I had a, a solid <laughs> answer for you. I do think, though, that we, we need, well, that's part of it. We need to broaden the question, though. I mean, we can look at the traditional residential four-year higher ed experience, which is the right answer for some people and and sort of a nice thing if you can get it. But I think that we also need to look at other ways to achieve advanced education, advanced credentialing, maybe two years, maybe four years, Mm -hmm. maybe, uh, you know, a a degree in, in, you know, arts, maybe a degree in sciences, maybe more in the way of a technical certificate. Something that I try to promote every chance I get is concurrent enrollment. Actually, so here's a success story. Mm-hmm. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, able to join a little celebration that Aurora West Academy had uh, in West Aurora for the first time ever for an APS high school. They had a 100% graduation rate for their 2018 graduating class. Uh, and that is, that is so for two yeah. things. 
uh, for two reasons. One, the hard work of the students and their teachers and their support system, family and friends and everything. Let's put credit where it's due. And second, because of a bill that I helped pass, which corrected the way in which we record graduation rates for assent concurrent enrollment. Concurrent enrollment is like it sounds like you're taking college and high school courses, and that is the case in, in most of the state. All, almost all the 178 districts have that to some extent. Ascent uh, is where the state pays for students uh, to having a home or maybe lodged at the high school for that fifth year, and the state covers the tuition cost of going to a two-year college typically and, and making more progress toward that degree. So in Denver, it, you know, it might be you know, CCD. Uh, where I am, it's typically mm-hmm. Community College of Aurora. APS is one of the biggest users of, of that in the state. Right now, we fund a certain number of slots, ballpark 550, 600. I think we should fund a lot more. The place that I would love to get to is every single high school student anywhere in Colorado who wants to do that fifth ascent year to go to whatever the local college is and keep working toward that two-year degree can get that. And that means millions of dollars more of state commitment. But imagine that if, whether it's four years or five, we had our high school uh, seniors coming out, not just with a diploma, which we all know isn't enough to hold down work anymore, but a two-year degree or, or an advanced certificate. And then, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe they go into the workforce. Or because we've also done work in the last 10 years or so to reform our laws about uh, transfer of credit, you can do concurrent enrollment, maybe mm-hmm. ascent, maybe without it, come out with your two-year degree, roll that into, let's just say, CU Boulder. Now you're starting CU Boulder as a junior. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're still going to pay two years of that tuition and, and, and cover that cost. But then you come out with a bachelor's degree in two years instead of four. You have just mm-hmm. saved tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, you literally just described my college experience. I went to a community college first for two years, got the degree, then went to a four-year university as a junior. And, and and probably, you know, saved a bunch of money versus uh, of money, the, the traditional experience. Because community college, you have to live at home. Yeah. Saved a bunch of money. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, think, I think this, you know, we had a conversation in the 2016 presidential election about, you know, free community college for all. Mm-hmm. What yeah. that looks like in other states, I can't say. What that looks like in Colorado is built on concurrent enrollment and built on assent, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. And I think that this needs to be the, the future path for education in Colorado. I don't like it. No, I. Did I answer your question? Yeah, no, I actually, <laughs> I'm one of those people who loves concurrent enrollment, right? I like the idea of one, it gives community colleges students that they otherwise would not have. It does offer an non traditional pathway that is not assumed in lower income households, but it's also something that can be offered to a lot more people than just a select few. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be on the bounds of economics and race and all those other factors if you if you look at i mean so you know aps is a pretty remarkable community college you know there are people of the traditional age you know 19 20 21 going there Uh, there are people who are very much older who are you know coming from another country maybe already have an educational Mm -hmm. credential from that country need to re-earn it here who are going back to school for additional uh, credentialing later in life very often uh at cca and 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 sent generally uh, you know, these are folks who are the first in their family to be able to go to college for a economic or, or other other reasons. And I think that we should continue to encourage that. Yeah. Of course, it's giving them the pathway and the tools to say if they do want to go to a four-year institution when they've completed, or in some cases just transfer out after they've completed a number of credits, because we have 
it where when you transfer from a community college here, it goes to all of our state institutions. It's one of the most beautiful things in the world because you don't have to worry about, will this school take these credits? Right. Mm -hmm. And so it gives them the exposure to decide whether or not they want more education. And it does lessen the burden on them because then if they decide, you know, I don't want to shoot for Boulder, I want to go to Metro, I want to go to uh, UC Denver, which is my institution, and I love it to death because, again, cheaper, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. It gives them that option as well, and it reminds people, I do think we have to reform a little bit of how we do um, our community college system because I think it does offer a limited approach to higher education on some levels, and I would like to see more of a liberal arts backing that teaches people to think more independently uh, integrated in, but I like how it is a nice step and it should be offered to more people. I think that's all we have. All right. We like to wrap up with final thoughts. This is sort of a, what you've been thinking about for the week or any kind of message you want to get across or anything like that. We'll let you have the last word if you like. Eris, do you have one in mind? or? Fuck you, Virginia. Get oh, your yeah. shit together. You're making us all look bad. Tired of hearing about stories about people in blackface in general on college campuses across the United States. So fuck you, Oklahoma. Again, um, I want to also just say fuck you, East High School, because as my mom reminded me, there's a picture of blackface of students in one of my yearbooks and to be reminded that not only is this a harken to the past but something that is still present i am deeply and profoundly disappointed yeah that's about it i, I said fuck you to a lot of people didn't i yeah <laughs> i was gonna say to you i forgot to remind you or tell you his final thoughts usually a fuck you to somebody so well, there's been, uh, there's been a lot of stuff going down in our country in, yeah. in not a good way in the last week. I think all of us know in the last couple of years we are in a trying time if you are a person of conscience and values and compassion in this country. It has been a hard place to be, and I'm not saying that in a partisan way. That's true if you're Democratic, unaffiliated, plenty of Republicans too. We have to continue to get through that. I'm focused on Colorado for a lot of reasons, not least uh, I have to be. I think that we are in a moment of opportunity here to try to be an example of functional government, of fact-based government, of responsible government. Government. We are a changing state in, in a, a lot of good ways, but with change comes challenges. We know that, I mean, shoot, when, when I first came to Colorado almost 15 years ago, Housing was so affordable here compared to so many other parts of the country. And I saw, I saw Denver on a top 40 most expensive cities in the world list mm -hmm. last year. Not country, world. That is not a good place yeah. to be. Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of the cost of health care, we have some, some counties in Colorado are among the most expensive counties in the country for health care. In terms of that, in terms of housing, um, you know, we have some work to do. But we are a state that increasingly people around the country look to for innovation, for leadership, for not succumbing to some of the same silliness that they succumb to in D.C., and we just got to continue to live up to that and be an example of what can go right in this country. Uh, my final thought for today is going to be to DCTA and the teachers. I, I stand with you. I think that you deserve more, you deserve better, and um, good luck on the strike. I agree. <laughs> and I will say if you get more, it's also your job to do better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's been Politically Pissed for this week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and have a great day. Say goodbye, guys. So long. Be easy, y'all.